So in my mid to late teenage years, I started getting really interested in magic, like magic tricks and illusions and stuff. My, my mom took my sisters and I to see David Copperfield as he was touring through, through Portland. And I sat there and watched some of these illusions where he made people disappear and, you know, made stuff move by itself. And, and his final illusion, he and his motorcycle were on stage and they disappeared and then they reappeared in the middle of the audience. I was blown away, just absolutely blown away. And so after that, I found our local magic shop. It used to be in downtown Portland. And so I went down there and I bought a book that taught me how to build and perform my own magic tricks. And, you know, while I enjoyed watching the, the big stuff, you know, making planes disappear or walking through the Great Wall of China, all that stuff, I started to gravitate towards the smaller things, the close-up card tricks and, you know, sleight-of-hand stuff. And... So I would go back to the magic shop whenever I had a chance to. And it was great to be able to talk to the people and kind of get tips on, on how to do different things and, and kind of talk with people that knew a lot more than I did about, about what was going on. And, you know, because I formed a relationship with the guy that owned the shop, I even got to work there part-time one summer. And I started getting pretty good at card tricks and slide a hand with, with money and, and rubber bands and stuff like that. And in fact, on our, on our first date, we sat at a table in Sherry's and I was doing card tricks for her while we were talking and getting to know each other. When I was learning a new trick as a teenager, I, I had a process. First, I would start doing the trick kind of in slow motion, getting the hand movements down. And then I would speed it up and start practicing in front of a mirror to see, you know, if, if it looked good enough to share. Next step was I'd go to the eight-year-old down the street. And he wasn't shy about telling me, I see what you're doing. When, when I got to the point that I could fool him, my next step was I'd show my mom. So when I do a trick for my mom, I'd get one of two reactions. Either, oh boy, that's great, which means she had, she wasn't fooled at all. She knew exactly what I was doing. Or when I was done, she'd sit in silence and then almost shout, Brad, how did you do that? And when I got that reaction, I knew that I could share that trick with my friends. Now, just like the steps that I would take with magic tricks, a lot of times worshiping and following Jesus has some steps that you need to take. And sometimes to outsiders, they look at the prospect of following Jesus and they just sit back and think, how, how do you do that? So the for the past six weeks, we've been going through Paul's letter to the people of Ephesus. And he's been hammering home, why? Why should the Ephesians and, and us why should we worship and follow Jesus? But in the second half of the letter, Paul seems to transition to how we should worship and follow Jesus. And he outlines different steps that people can take, they can kind of use as a roadmap or an instruction book to help them get started and stay on the right path. 
And even though this letter was written more than 1,900 years ago, I think you'll find that a lot of the issues that are addressed in the second half of this letter are just as relevant today as they were when Paul wrote this letter. So we're going to start out with the first part of chapter 4 of Ephesians today. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them up to Ephesians chapter 4. If you want to use the pew Bibles right there in front of you, uh, feel free. Our, our passage is on page 1158, so go ahead and, and turn there. Again, if you don't have a Bible and you would like one, I've got three or four of them in my office, brand new, still in the packaging, just ready to be given out. So if you'd like one, let me know. Okay, so starting with verse 1, Paul writes, As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So Paul has written three chapters explaining why we should worship and follow Jesus. And that we were created and chosen by God. We have been saved by grace. And we are all God's people. The barrier between us and God is now gone. And then in his first line of chapter 4, he basically says, Now act like it. God has done all of these things through Jesus for you. Why aren't you acting like you've been saved? Why aren't you behaving like you're God's chosen people? I think I've, in the past I've told you a couple stories about my buddy Pat. He and I used to do men's breakfast together at a previous church. And, uh, you know, we'd, we'd have great conversations as we were preparing breakfast. And one Saturday I was telling him, I said, you know, I, I don't know that I want to put a Christian bumper sticker on the back of my car because to be honest, I don't want to give God a bad name. I mean, there are times that I, I get a little frustrated in traffic, and I don't want people to see that, it, that a Jesus follower would act like I do when I get upset. And he kind of chuckled, and he says, it sounds like you need to put the bumper sticker on your dashboard to remind you that you're a follower of Jesus. You know, I, I don't want to speak for anybody else, but there are definitely, definitely times that I need to be reminded of who I follow that I have been saved by grace, that I am a recipient of everything that God has done for us and me. So later on in the coming passages and chapters, Paul's going to drill down on certain issues. But as we get back to our passage today, he kind of lays out a few bullet points. And for us, it, he lays out the bullet points for us in the church and what it looks like to act in a manner worthy of our calling. He writes, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So first, the first part of that, the Ephesians are called to live in humility. Jesus taught, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus himself was born in a humble manger. He grew up in humble surroundings. He lived a humble life, and yet his life had a huge, amazingly important impact on the world. And Paul is saying, as followers of Jesus, we should operate in that same way. 
the second part of what Paul lays out is that we are to live with gentleness. In one of Paul's other letters to the people of Galatia, he outlines something called the fruits of the Spirit. And being gentle is one of those fruits. Being gentle not only helps you avoid unnecessary conflict, but it also demonstrates the love that Jesus talked about when he said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now next on that short list is patience. Patience is another part of the fruit of the Spirit. And it's a must if we are going to love others. When Paul's laying out his definition of love in his first letter to the people of Corinth, the first adjective that he uses is that love is patient. And finally, the last bullet point Paul mentions is unity. A few weeks back, we talked about how we should focus on what unites us, not what divides us. And Paul is kind of reiterating that here. He's telling us that we are all one body, and we are serving and worshiping one Lord. Be humble, gentle, patient, bearing with, a, bearing with another in love, and to make every effort to keep unity. When you're doing these things, and I'm not saying that they're easy, but when you're doing these things, you're preaching the word of God. And that sermon that you are preaching, it'll lead more people to Jesus than anything that I can ever say up here. Showing people Jesus beats telling people about Jesus every single time. And Paul does talk about unity, but as he continues, he points out that unity does not mean uniformity. He writes, starting in verse 7, But to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That's why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he has descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the other heavens in, in, in order to fill the whole universe. So Paul tells us that every single one of us is different and we have different gifts and we have different needs. And then Paul goes into kind of like a little bit of a Bible study. He quotes Psalm 68, 18, and he explains that the one who ascended must have been the one who descended down to earth first. And that must have been Jesus, who came down to us and then ascended back to heaven. And then, Paul really starts to hammer home this point. He's telling us that we all have a job to do here in church. Every single one of us. He writes, starting in verse 11, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up and we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Everyone has a job in church. Now, you may be thinking, I'm not an apostle. 
I'm not, I'm not a prophet. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a teacher. So I guess I'm off the hook. Sorry to tell you, that's just not true. Paul says that these people, the, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastors, and teachers, they have been given to equip all of us. Everyone has a ministry. It may not be preaching, it may not, not, it may not be teaching Sunday school, but everyone has a ministry. Think about everything that has to happen here at Hillsview. Somebody has to unlock the doors, turn on the heat. Somebody has to create and print the bulletin. Somebody has to clean the church and empty the garbage. Somebody has to take care of the lawn and the trees and the bushes so the outside looks nice. Someone has to make sure that the microphones and the speakers are working. Somebody has to make coffee in the mornings. Somebody has to make sure that all the bills, like the utilities, are getting paid here. All of that and more needs to happen before we even get started Sunday morning. Now, our church is blessed with a dedicated group of people that does most of, if not all of, those things that I listed. But like I said earlier, everyone has a ministry. What's yours? What is your ministry here at Hillsview? If you aren't sure what you can do here at Hillsview, come talk to me. Come talk to one of the council members. We'll help you find a place where you can serve Jesus here in church. Some jobs are in front of people. Some jobs are behind the scenes. But all of these jobs, as Paul puts it, are works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. No job is too small here at Hillsview, and it all works to, be, to build up the body of Christ. Now, in the last part of our passage today, Paul kind of gives us a glimpse of what it's going to look like when all of us are working to build up the body of Christ. He writes in verse 14, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So there is certainly no shortage of people that are telling you, that want to tell you, this is what you think. This is what you need to think. Could be about politics, could be about nutrition, could be about sports, or any number of other subjects. But the problem is, they pass their opinions off as facts. And unfortunately, that's also true with following Jesus. I mean, there are plenty of people online or on TV that preach something called the prosperity gospel. They talk about how Jesus just really wants you to be happy. He wants you to be successful. He wants you to be rich. And if you're not rich or successful, you must be doing something wrong. And when you listen to him, God has kind of relegated God. Or they, sorry. When you listen to them, God has been relegated to some sort of genie that's just granting wishes left and right. And we also have denominations all over the world that profess to worship and follow Jesus, 
but they have hard-line stances that kind of separate them from other believers. Some believe that you have to be immersed to be baptized. Some believe that sprinkling baptism is okay. They don't focus on, hey, you were baptized. That's a good thing. Some believe that only men can be pastors. Some believe that women can be pastors. Some believe that you're supposed to meet on Sunday mornings. Some believe that you can meet any other time during the week, maybe Saturday, maybe Wednesday, that you're just meeting whenever. And when you hear these arguments and these different stances, as a young Christian, it's easy to be, as Paul says, tossed back and forth by the different waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. But as we mature as Christians, we become rooted in what Scripture says. And we begin to listen to what God is telling us. Not some TV preacher or not what some denomination says. And as we all serve together, we start to learn from each other. And we begin to mature as Christians. And a mature Christian is an amazing resource for building God's kingdom. At 45 years old, I am smart enough to know that there's a lot of stuff that I don't know. And one of the greatest blessings that God has put in my ministerial toolbox is three men that are in my life that have over 75 years. Have over 75 years of ministerial experience. And I have relationships with these guys. So I can go to them, use them as a resource. If I have a question about ministry or leading a church, sure, I, I got a degree in Christian ministry. But some of the things that these guys have experienced in their ministry, you can't learn in a classroom. What they have learned in their experience has helped them in their ministries and now in turn is helping me in my ministry and also in turn helping all of us in Hillsview as a body of believers. So these next few weeks, we're going to be tackling subjects like marriage, parenting, sexual immorality, spiritual warfare, and more. And when Paul wrote this letter to the people of Ephesus, he started with why we follow and worship Jesus. But as we dive into the second half of the letter, Paul is giving us instructions on how to navigate this world and the pitfalls and the sins that come with it. And as we put these instructions into our own lives, people will start to see there's something different about you. People will start to see that you have something that they don't have. And when the world starts going sideways and your world isn't falling apart, don't be surprised when somebody comes up to you and says, how did you do that? Let's pray. Lord in heaven, thank you so much for today. Thank you for just being with us and giving us instructions on how to come to you. Thank you for, for giving us this, this roadmap of how to navigate the world as crazy as it is to, to just keep on focusing on you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for your love and, and your grace and your blessings. And thank you just for being you. Thank you for being our God. Lord, it's truly in your name that we pray.